Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Welcome to The Connection, a weekly radio program where we share our experiences and expertise with stories of caring, courage, and change right here in Connecticut. Listen to learn about needed resources to improve your well-being and transform your life. Now, here are the hosts of The Connection, Lisa DeMattis-Lapore and Ann Baldwin. Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to another edition of The Connection. It's great to have you along with myself, Ann Baldwin. And I'm Lisa DeMattis Lapore from The Connection. Good and morning. Good morning. And maybe some of you are listening on your uh, mobile devices or on Alexa, which I know my family is because we've figured out that you can do that. You just got to ask for WTIC News Talk 1080. And there we are. I'm getting it now. Are you? Because good. I can't he- because I live in Danbury. I can't hear it from there. Right. So. Right. So, so now I can get it. It makes sense. Well, we're really excited, Lisa. Um, you've got a big conference coming up. Uh, the Connections 2019 conference, and it's going to be held at Wesleyan, and it's coming up pretty quickly, October 21st. It's an all-day conference, and we've had many of the breakout speakers on this program um, throughout the course leading up to the conference, and uh, we've got another one of those in the house. We've got Jamal Jimerson, and Jamal is the founder of the Minority Inclusion Project and also a managing partner for Thought Partner Solutions, and... Um, it's a nonprofit racial leadership organization. Jamal, thank you for being here. And welcome, welcome. Yes, who better to tell us, you know, what you do than you? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Um, so, a little bit about Minority Inclusion Project. This this MIP and, and uh, Thought Partners, which is T, we call it TPS. They're, they're sort of a two-headed monster. So, on one side, I'm a nonprofit, and the other side, I'm a consultant, which is you know sort of for profit. But um. The idea with MIP is I've been working in the nonprofit sector um, almost 20 years uh, in various leadership roles. And really, um, it became quite clear to me that I was oftentimes the only person of, of, of color in leadership, and especially when we go into senior leadership, executive leadership. Um, and I'd be asked a lot who I knew that you know I could bring into organizations for opportunities at the mm-hmm. leadership level, at the board level. Um, so you know, at some point, I just kind of decided to you know address the issue. Right? It was like you know. Um, we know the problem exists, but what are we kind of doing about it? Um, and so, you know, after talking to some friends in the nonprofit community and talking to some folks over at UConn, um, I got some really great inspiration to get the Minority Inclusion Project off the ground, uh, put together a founding group, and we started it. And really, the initial premise was just to put together an organization to help address the sourcing issue. So we said, okay, if we can identify really great dynamic people of color that can serve in, you know, leadership roles in nonprofits, great. You know, we've done our job. Uh, what we what we learned very quickly into doing this work was that the issue was not just about sourcing, that it was really a more broader conversation around uh, barriers to inclusion, barriers to access in nonprofits, and really it was an equity challenge. So we uh, really expanded our focus to really be, be about um, equity and inclusion and diversity in a broader context. Um, we um, focus primarily on boards, so we do a lot of our work with nonprofit boards in terms of having sensitive and difficult discussions about race and inclusion and um, really helping them to not only become aware of some of the challenges, but really to work 
work on strategy. So how do you address some of the challenges with dealing with these issues, right? Beyond just recruitment. Um, and then thought partners is my second head. And so really that developed because um, we uh, were asked to do a lot of things that went outside the mission of MIP. Um, and we realized that, you know, you're going out and doing keynotes and all kinds of other workshops and staff race equity work and anti-racism conversations across the country. And we figured, you know what, let's let's do that in a separate hat. So thought partners developed out of that. And so now I'm running two businesses, basically. Oh, wow. That's so wonderful. <laughs> yeah. That's fantastic. That is great. You know, and I've sat on a number of boards and, and it mm -hmm. is. I know for a lot of folks it's a it's a big big challenge and you know is the issue that there there aren't enough folks to fill those seats or are there are not enough folks out there that think they could fill that seat right I would say that it's it's the answer is yes to both right and so like there's the issue of um, there is a sourcing challenge in terms of being able to identify the number of people to fill the number of seats that are available mm -hmm. Um, there are folks who don't believe they're qualified necessarily to serve on board, so we know we have to do work there. But then what we also discovered is that um, nonprofit boards have um, long histories of kind of being built around some institutionally exclusionary sort of value systems, which make it challenging for folks to engage and get involved. And there's a, there's a level of what we call unconscious incompetence, which essentially means you don't know what you don't know. Yeah. Um, but there's a level of unconscious incompetence that exists in the nonprofit um, boardroom that doesn't really engage or understand why people are not necessarily coming in. So the idea of, you know, we've opened the doors, we've done recruitment, but where are the folks is that question still has not been quite answered. So to you, to answer your question, it's like, yes, and right. There's mm -hmm. all these other factors that, you know, matter as well. So we've been, I've been really trying to, um, you know, change some of the structure of my board for exactly the reason that you're talking about, mm -hmm. um, because I don't feel that, the the connection can do its work mm -hmm. unless its members on it on the board are diverse in many ways right. and come with um, a variety of different experiences also those that have suffered um, trauma and substance abuse and other things and you know there are folks that um, will or won't admit that right right but we all come with a history right right um, but at the same time, I don't think that we can possibly strategize or move forward with an organization if we don't have diversity and many walks of life on our board, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. right? And I really think that that's really key. And, and, and I have to say it's been a struggle because yeah. that's something that, that I really want. Um, I feel that I need that, yeah. right, to keep it real. Yeah. Um, but also because I also feel that with the divert, the, the breadth and the depth of our organization, mm -hmm. how can we possibly serve everyone unless our board is a mirror? There's also some consciousness that exists within boardrooms that, you know, um, you have people who are clearly aware that there's a diversity challenge and not trying to do anything about it. I know. So we're kind of we're kind of in an interesting place of having to deal with both sides. I come across yesterday, for example, I did three um, organizations, met with three organizations in Fairfield County, three different, uh, completely different meetings, totally different locations, um, all with leaders who are, you know, CEOs, executive directors who get it who want to see their boards change, who want to see the shift happen. What are they running up against? They're running up against boards that are composed or, you know, uh, comprised of like, you know, business leaders, right, from, from different walks who may or may not 
uh, care about some of these issues, a lack of empathy, um, a lack of interest in equity or diversity. And some of those board members are like, well, we have leverage and power and we're here because we care about the mission, but we don't see how that connects to anything else. And we really don't care about these other issues. And so sometimes you run into that as well. And that's what I mean. You have a mix of both, you know, sort of a conscious incompetence or a conscious decision to kind of disconnect or, you know, cognitive dissonance to, to some degree. And then you also have you know, this unconscious incompetence that, that rests as well. And so it's a interesting mix of challenges that we're up it, against. It is. Right? Our, our board is um, changing and becoming more cognizant of those issues. But right. I want to, uh, can I want to share something? One of my board members, um, she's, um, I love her and she's really wonderful. And she was um, talking about her son. I think he's a doctor, mm-hmm. Margaret. I, her son is a doctor. Um, and she said, I have to worry, think about this for a minute, I have to worry when my son is walking on the streets at night Mm -hmm. that he might get shot Mm -hmm. because he's black Mm -hmm. as he's walking to the hospital. Mm -hmm. This is my fear. Mm -hmm. Like he lives in constant fear. Like this is a reality of as a mother and sort of what what we deal with. Mm -hmm. And she projected that into our clients. And it became a larger discussion of silence in the room, Mm -hmm. of kind of the reality of, you know, one example. And I thought to myself, you know, right, like she gets it. You know, she understands like certain things that we don't really always talk about and we need to be talking about that. We we did a project where um, we did a trauma informed project Mm -hmm. where we had our clients, um, consumers, clients, you know, people talk about what's the better word, Mm -hmm. folks that are getting our treatment, um, walk around with a camera Mm -hmm. in the streets to talk about what it's like for them in their world, how they see the world, but mostly how the world yeah. is looking at them. Yeah. It blew everyone's mind. It was so intense. And to have folks talk to us about what is it like for you when you come out of incarceration mm-hmm. and you're walking in the door for the very first time? Right. What are those feelings? What do you bring? What are you, what did you experience? Yeah. What was or wasn't welcoming for you? What are the things that you need to get healthy? Right. What are, how do you perceive what's happening right now? And how do you perceive the staff? And, and then sort of where we are, where are you, and how do we come together sure. to provide for you the best experience that you can have? Well, right. much of that, I mean, even as you're describing that that conversation, a lot of that is rooted in inquiry, right? So, like, right. the reason why it's hard to have some of these difficult conversations is because folks oftentimes don't come in with sort of that appreciative inquiry approach. Like, we just want to know more about your lived experience, your perspective, your lens. And then on top of that, I think there's a lack of um, validation, which then oftentimes leads to an additional lack of empathy around mm-hmm. some of the experiences, the lived experiences that people have and, and whatever world or version of the world we live in the more we can break that down so that we create spaces where that you know mirroring and validation and empathy can happen that empathetic conversation model the more we can create spaces where folks can ask questions right and Mm -hmm. and and be able to learn from one another the 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 more likely we are to figure out strategies to work together you'll find that like most of this most of my work is really about human experience right it's about the way we see the world the way we experience the world and frankly you know, um, 
what I find more, the, the anger in some of this conversation and, and some of the discomfort really comes from folks looking for, for validation. I, I equate it to, you know, couples at home that, that fight, right? You know, they go to a therapist. Most times they find out that the root of the issue is communication. What's happening? Well, someone's saying something the other one's not hearing, right? And you have couples that wait years and years and years and years for simple things like mirroring and val I just want to be heard. I just want to be validated. I mean, validation is simply, hey, you know, you don't necessarily have to um, agree, but you can understand from from just my lens from my world so right right just for so a moment right. take yourself outside your own worldview to see mine right because the reality is we all will not have the same lived experience that's okay. just a, f a fact no. and then empathy is simply this idea that um, you know you're in california there's an earthquake you're 500 miles away whatever it is you know i may not necessarily know what it's like to be in a shaken building but i can i can understand how that might scare you and how that might shake you up to have been through that experience so again if i'm looking at it through your worldview let me just give you that much and i think if we can do that it gives folks a lot of room to start it, to have right. conversation i right? think it breaks down walls yeah we're speaking with jamal jimerson and uh jamal is um with two companies right. <laughs> he right. called right. it a two-headed monster yeah. i i don't know if i'd call years. you a monster but <laughs> he's a dynamo you are a dynamo so the you're going to be presenting in one of the breakout sessions at the uh, Cultivating uh, Resilience Conference that the Connection's putting on um, on October 21st at Wesleyan. And if you want more information, you can go to theconnectioninc.org. Um, they do ask that you pre-register. There is a fee for the conference, but you get a light breakfast, lunch, and uh, networking, so it's priceless. So the title of your breakout is the three R's, Race, Racism, and Resiliency. So why don't you talk? It's a 75-minute workshop. Sure. And I will be there. Awesome. I can't wait to I'm hear it. Forward to I'm really good. I'm really. You. Thank you. So tell me, tell us about what you're you're going to be doing in this yeah. presentation. So so really, what we want to do is we want to begin to really open up a, a framework for a broader conversation around race and racism because. Um, what we're finding is that uh, when I talk about like the root of most of the, the discomfort around anti-racism or race conversations is that when people hear race and racism, they, they listen to them, they hear loaded words, mm -hmm. they hear a uh, vitriol, they think of it as these things that are just, you know, sort of dichotomous, they're either good or bad. And so what we're trying to do in our workshops is really expand the idea to think about racism beyond the scope of an individual an individual's experience or this idea of this dichotomous sort of binary good and bad way of looking at it and get into the gray space and that's the space that i like to rest in the gray space where it's complex um like for example i'll ask a question like what came first race or racism and that opens up a dialogue because our our um, minds tell us well it had to be race first in order to get racism when in fact um, arguably it was the other way around hmm. um, that racism was a system that was designed and it needed to be in place to be able to put power over people, right? And so in order to be able to leverage that power and justify the power of people who considered themselves to be moral and ethical, they had to come up with ways to categorize the people that they were taking power and taking wealth from. And so subsequently, that became the idea of race. You structure them, you put them in, in, bu in buckets. I mean, I know I'm simplifying this, but over time, that's really what it's become. Um, and this idea that you then add characteristic and you add meaning to what that race means, that makes, it, that makes it a social construct, that makes it something that someone designed. And you think about across the board with social identity, these are all things that have been defined for us. Like the idea of what age means, what it means to have, exactly. you know, to be young versus what it means to be old. The idea of what it means to be a woman versus what it means to be a man or what it means to be queer or what, whatever these things mean. These are all things that are given social context, right? Social mm -hmm. structure. So race 
is no different. The the uh, root of that is understanding where that comes from, right? And then being able to connect that to some of the contemporary issues that we have today and why it's so challenging to, to have meaningful conversations about race. So that's part of what this workshop is about, is about connecting those dots. So I have a question. Why in my world, it seems that racism has gotten black or brown and white. Mm -hmm. So, but you know, Lisa and I, we were talking before. She's Italian. Mm -hmm. She's mistaken as other nationalities. Right. My Irish family, you know, they went through some tough times too. So why is it, or is it just my mind, mm -hmm. and I should go to this conference, that yeah. it just seems like that's what, where it's gotten. Yeah. It's It's just... There's nothing in between. I mean, we've all had our struggles, every race, every nationality. Again, this goes back to understanding the complexity of race and racism and the history of it, because the reality of it is that if we define race as as merely that simple as just black versus white, these interpersonal challenges that we have, we miss sort of the bigger point. Um, Robin D'Angelo, who's the author of White Fragility, did a really phenomenal job of defining racism. And the way that she, she articulated, I think she did a phenomenal job with this, she said, it's, it's not just these acts of racial discrimination, these interpersonal things that happen. What it is is, a, is a, the idea of, um, of collective prejudice, collective racial discrimination that's backed by institutional authority and power. Hmm. And so in order to really be able to have a robust conversation about race and racism, you've got to talk about power. When you ask the question of why does it seem like it's black and white, because really what we're talking about is a history of a power struggle that's existed that goes back to, you know, um, the Enlightenment even. Right. I mean, you're, you're, you're talking about a time when Europeans were, um, were taking land, were taking wealth, were taking goods from all people outside of Europe. I mean, really, you know, um, and the idea was to create this this system to really explain or justify why this had to happen and and unfortunately when you look at the way that black people africans were categorized even at that time it was it was done in a way to say that these are the folks that needed us the most to come in and just think about this they need us to come in and, and save them um they're they're the opposite of what we are and and literally there's a gentleman named um carolus linnaeus um and, and he's a, um, a botanist, a zoologist, all these other things, really well-renowned scientist. But he's the person that's like sort of the father of race. And in the 1700s, this guy put together these categorizations. And one of the things that we saw was that there was these characteristics that were associated with Europeans and characteristics that were associated with Africans. And they were literally polar opposites. So it became white, white skin, this idea of whiteness or white-like was just good it was great it was just wonderful it was moral it was you know righteous and everything on the opposite end of that spectrum was was something else so when you ask about how it became so black and white i mean in a, in a sensationalist kind of conversation that's what it's become it's become very interpersonal so white versus black and we look at these incidences and we say this thing happened and especially uh you know i would say post 60s when it became sort of like politically incorrect to be classified in any way as a racist there was a move away from wanting to see racism as a structure as a power system that we all exist to no, know it's just when you see these really insane acts that they, those are the only times racism has happened and truth is we exist in a, a racist culture will that ever change though it can it can it can i think i think that it needs to so much of racism i'm not saying it doesn't need to but i just wonder i mean it's been historically you know you go i just i just don't know i just well, don't i mean here's the thing if you again if you look at it as power 
when you look at what drives power and, and how power drives policy, it drives economics, it drives a lot of things. I think that the idea of being anti-racist, right, of, of challenging racism, which is a clear stance, is to say we're going to challenge policies that advance mm -hmm. racism. And doing that is probably the only way that you're going to really break the system. The idea is not to, to you know, the idea of, of racial prejudice and racial discrimination, those are, those are real things that exist almost intrinsically. If you think about it implicitly, we are biased against folk. But the idea of challenging racism as a power structure, as a, as a structure that's backed by institutional authority, if you can begin to challenge that institutional authority through policy challenging, through uh, program development, through awareness and education around what some of those issues are, then yeah, you, have, you can actually um, deconstruct a racist system if you do that, but you've gotta be willing to call out and make explicit the things that are embedded in the fabric of our society. Yeah, it is, you know, and sometimes I feel I catch myself and I'll be like, you know, maybe I'll have an attitude with somebody of color and I'll say, oh, that was, you know, that was racist. But it wasn't about racism. It was about that individual that behaved badly. And whether they were white or green or blue, they were going to get the wrath of Anne. Mm -hmm. Although I caught myself on vacation and uh, there I was. And this African-American woman was walking down the hall and I said to her, you don't need to clean, clean my room today. Now, she wasn't in a mm -hmm. cleaning lady outfit or anything. And I just, I said, you know, I am so sorry. Mm -hmm. I said, are you the housekeeper? And she said, yes. I said, well, I just assumed that you were. Mm. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I really thought that through. That was really. But unpack that. And I would, I would go back further because I don't, this is why I say it's, it's dangerous to look at individuals and, and focus on individual acts of racial prejudice or racial discrimination. It's not that we can't acknowledge and, and inform on that, but I think the idea is that the individual acts um, are bad enough. I think that there's a larger issue that we're not talking about, which is socialization, right? So like, how do we learn? How do we, how do we begin to associate the black person that we see in the hotel who's not even dressed as a housekeeper as housekeeping as the, as the help where do we get that from that's not something that you created you didn't wake up in the morning and say hey i'm going to draw this the reality is that these are images that were fed to you mm -hmm. how did you get fed those images and then you've got to go back and start looking at right. how race and racism has had such a deep historical context yeah you're right that it's fed us a lot of things that we've been socialized to believe are true and the the one of the things about socialization is that the images, the messages that we receive are fed to us by institutions, people that we trust, who also, in some cases, are unconsciously incompetent. They don't even know that they're spreading information that's not historically valid or accurate. My son, he's going to be 17. Mm -hmm. You know what he says to me mm -hmm. about all his friends that are from every creed, everything? He tells me, I'm going to cry, I don't want to tells me how he sees the world through their eyes mm. and what he's learning and that what he learns through all of those boys that he hangs with is so amazing to me that I want to believe I want to believe in my heart that the way that I grew up and the things that were around me are, ch are definitely changing mm. and I see that when I see them all together mm -hmm. right because all, they're all 17-year-old boys playing basketball on a, feet, on a course, mm -hmm. and they all really love each other like, bro like literally brothers, mm -hmm. and they bond in a way that I have never seen before. Right. They're every walk of everything. 
Sure. Everything. Sure. And the things that he learns and tells me about who they are and what goes on in the house and their culture has made him a better person mm-hmm. today. And I want to believe that our generation is going to change and right. not, I, I know it's always going to exist, but I want to believe, I, I just need to keep that in my soul that, that when I see that, that a change will happen. It will. It will. And you I know, I want to believe that it's going to my, you know what? My son will be the first one to say to me that you're, any comment that he hears, like a family member make a comment, he'll say, that is a racist comment. Or why do you assume that? Mm-hmm. And he challenges people, and I love it. Yeah. That it, makes me happy. I think it is a generational thing. I know the way that I was raised, and then my son went to Windsor High School, and he says he, he owes a lot of his success mm-hmm. in the field that he works in because of the diversity that he was exposed to. Mm-hmm. He's so grateful and thankful for that. And to your point, those are his friends today. So all we can do is hope it's getting better. Um, but I think there's a lot to learn. And I appreciate you sharing um, sharing this with us. Jamal Jimerson, um, theconnectioninc.org. Please pre-register. The conference is on October 21st from 9 to 3.30 at Wesleyan. And thank you for your time. And thank you all for listening to this edition of The Connection right here on WTIC News Talk 1080. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours. And great coverage is just the beginning. Right now, families and small businesses can save up to 20% versus AT&T and Verizon when they switch. Visit your local T-Mobile store today. Plan savings with three lines of T-Mobile essentials versus comparable available plans. Plan features and taxes and fees may vary.